Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Kareem Chami from the University of California, Los Angeles, talking about BCG unresponsive bladder cancer. Okay, so uh, I'd like to start off our presentation today. Um, but I will first introduce our speaker, Dr. Chami, Associate Professor of U- Urology at UCLA. Uh, initially underwent medical school at USC. After completing his urologic training at UC Davis, I finished an SUO fellowship in urologic oncology at UCLA. Uh, he remains there now um, with primary research interests focused on health services research, clinical trials, and bladder. Uh, with clinical interests covering all of urologic oncology, but with a particular interest in bladder cancer and robotic surgery. Uh, so with that, I'll hand it over uh, to him to go over our topic for today. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I, got, I have a lot to get through, so I want to get started and uh, talk to you a little bit about BCG unresponsive bladder cancer. You guys can all see my slides okay? All right. Um, here's the outline. First, um, I'm going to talk about a little bit about burden of bladder cancer, not so much survival, but more um, the impact of, uh, of, of recurrences and progression in patients with high-grade bladder cancer. We'll then go over some data about BCG efficacy. Uh, we'll define what BCG unresponsive disease is. We'll go over some of the existing therapies, some of the clinical trials, and of course, we can't forget radical cystectomy. So a little bit about burden of bladder cancer. Everyone talks about five-year survival rates for patients with bladder cancer being something on the order of 80 to 90%. But what they kind of miss is that the vast majority of patients who have high-grade bladder cancer tend to have a lot of recurrences and progression. This is a paper that um, I published about seven years ago uh, looking at um, patients with high-grade bladder cancer. If you look at a, at a cohort of 7,400 patients, these are Medicare beneficiaries, 65 years of age or older, who are diagnosed with bladder cancer. Out of the 7,400, what you'll see is that if you follow these patients for four and a half years, only about 1,000 patients are alive without any recurrences or progression. So you got you know, six-sevenths of this cohort that end up either dying, having recurrences, or progress to muscle-invasive disease. Now, if you uh, look at when they recur, when they progress, and when they die, you'll see the vast majority of the recurrences occur in the first two years. So the two-year recurrence rate for patients with high-grade bladder cancer is about 61%, and it tends to level off after that. That's why our uh, surveillance strategies tend to be so intense in the first couple years. So at five years, it's 69.5, and at 10 years, it's about 74%. If you look at progression, it doesn't actually plateau off. So every, you know, every, every few years, it tends to continue to go up by 10%. So at two years, it's about 13. At five years, it's about 23%. And at 10 years, it's about 33%. And as far as mortality, at two years, it's six and a half. At five, it's 10. And at 10 years, it's 12%. So these patients with high-grade bladder cancer do have a um, long-term risk of, of, of progression. What about some of the efficacy data that we have for, for BCG? First, we know that patients who have carcinoma in situ, the complete response rates from BCG are about 80%. The problem is, is that most patients, at least if you look at some of these uh, historical series, will end up recurring within five years. So within, within a year, 50% of patients will recur, and up to 90% of patients will recur within five years. 
and half of those will progress. Now, there was the, uh, uh, the SWOG study that looked at maintenance BCG, and this is something that most people here uh, know quite well. Uh, for the residents who, who take the in-service exam, you got to memorize the, um, the SWOG uh, uh, treatment uh, patterns as far as when they get their installations. But you, what you also notice is that patients who got maintenance therapy did significantly better with regards to recurrence and progression-free survival. There was a trend towards improvement in overall survival. Unfortunately, only 16% of patients completed all full eight courses. Now, there have been other studies that have looked at, at BCG. Uh, there are a number of studies that compared intravesical BCG and compared it with intravesical mitomycin C. And if you look at these four studies, what you'll notice is that in studies where patients did not get maintenance BCG, mitomycin C actually outperformed BCG therapy. In patients who did get maintenance BCG, however, uh, BCG tended to outperform mitomycin C. And here the Kaplan-Meier curve, so you'll see on the top left corner, patients who had uh, BCG with maintenance, the blue line here is BCG outperformed mitomycin, and um, in patients who did not get maintenance therapy, the red line, which is mitomycin outperformed uh, BCG. Now, this, this was present um, even for those who've had no prior chemotherapy and BCG or those that have had prior chemotherapy or BCG. Patients who get BCG with maintenance tend to outperform mitomycin C therapy irrespective of prior intravesical therapies. Now, what if a patient recurs after an induction course? What do you do? The board answer you is you re-challenge them with a second induction course. And this is based on a number of studies that have actually looked at this. So you'll see that about 35% of patients who um, have failed a prior induction course of BCG therapy will respond to a second course of BCG therapy. However, uh, further, um, <clears throat> further intravesical ther uh, therapy courses have no benefit. Uh, Bill Catalona, before he um, was uh, limited his practice to only prostate cancer, actually studied this and found that for every extra course of BCG, there's a 7% increased risk of progression. Now, let's talk about BCG unresponsive disease. And so before we actually had a definition of BCG unresponsive disease, we as urologists actually broke, out, broke down uh, the definition of BCG failures into BCG refractory, resistant, relapsing, and intolerant. BCG refractories tend to be tends to be associated with worse outcomes. These patients are those that are, um, that, that are given an induction course of BCG and evaluating them six months later, they still have, um, they still have uh, carcinoma in situ or papillary disease. Um, VCG refractories, also patients that say may have had TA, high-grade TA or CIS initially, and you give them an induction course of BCG, and at three months, you go in there and you find that they have high-grade T1. So even though they don't receive any additional therapies up to six months, the fact that they progress from high-grade TA or CIS to T1 makes them BCG refractory. BCG resistant are patients who, um, who have persistence of disease at three months after an induction uh, cycle. Uh, but sometimes uh, it, it's, if you look at them at six months, they have a lower grade or lower stage um, uh, after six months therapy. 
BCG relapsing is probably the most common. These are patients who initially respond to BCG to the induction course and maintenance course. And if you follow these patients, they, they may recur within 12 months, uh, 12 to 24 months and more than 24 months. So if they, if they recur within 12 months, they're early relapsers. If 12 to 24 months, they're intermediate relapsers. And if, they're, if they relapse more than 24 months later, then they're late um, relapsers. BCG intolerant are those that are unable to tolerate it secondary to um, uh, adverse effects. Now, we've since actually come up with um, a, a more defined um, approach towards um, classifying patients with um, uh, BCG uh, unresponsive disease. And now what we classify it as any patient who has persistent or recurrent carcinoma uh, in situ alone or with TAT1 disease within 12 months of receiving adequate BCG therapy. What adequate BCG therapy means is they've received at least five of six induction courses and two or three maintenance courses. It also includes patients who have recurrent high-grade disease within six months of completing BCG, and those who, again, may have gone from TA or CIS up to T1 after the initial uh, three-month uh, induction. Now, what do the AUA and the AU guidelines offer? Well, they tell us that the standard of care is still a radical cystectomy for patients with BCG unresponsive disease. But um, you may be able to offer uh, clinical trials for those that, um, that, that, that may um, be too old or too frail to undergo this aggressive uh, treatment. So what do we have available to us? Well, some of the earlier work was done by Mike O'Donnell. And in this study, it was a phase two study where he, everybody was given uh, interferon alpha. And um, what, what these patients were, were given was a third dose of BCG plus 50 million units of interferon alpha um, if they were able to tolerate BCG well. If they were BCG intolerant, then they got a tenth of a dose of BCG plus 100 million units of interferon alpha. And then these patients were given uh, three weekly installations of uh, interferon alpha and BCG at three, nine, and 15 months. And you'll see here, it's, it's not like so we're comparing BCG to uh, BCG interferon. Everybody here got BCG plus interferon. But what you'll notice is that the patients who are BCG naive ended up outperforming those who, BCG, who failed prior BCG. So if you look at two years, 59% of the patients uh, are um, recurrent-free for the BCG-naive and 45% of those with, who failed prior BCG therapy. Now, they also did a multivariable, multivariable analysis and found that other predictors of increased risk of um, recurrence was if the tumor was greater than five centimeters, if it's multifocal, if they were BCG refractory, um, if their recurrences were less than 12 months, or if they had T1 disease compared to TA. But what you'll notice is that patients who recur more than 12 months actually do no different than patients who are BCG naive. That's why if a patient recurs more than 12 months later from, from receiving any BCG therapy, we in, essence call, we in essence think of them as BCG naive. Now, they also looked at other predictors, and so they found that patients who had TA disease their two-year disease-free survival was 35%. For those with CIS, it was 24%. Time to relapse. So if they were BCG refractory, it was 34%. If they're early relapsers, it's 41%. If they're intermediates, 
uh, early relapses were 41 to 43%. If they're intermediates, it's 53%. And if they're late, late relapsers, their recurrence-free survival at two years was 66%. So they, you know, uh, when they recur is based on not only their tumor biology, or, but also their recurrence pattern. Um, if you look at who benefited the most, you'll see that you know, on the bottom lower hand corner, you'll see that patients who are BCG naive tend to do better than those who recur um, uh, more than 12 months and those who recur less than 12 months tend to do the worst. Unfortunately, interferon is no, it's unlikely to be available in the future. And so while that's a little sad, you have to realize that most, most physicians weren't actually using interferon. And there is a new uh, therapy that actually harnesses the, the, the use, the power of interferon towards BCG and responsive disease. And I'll talk about that a little later. So what are some of the other existing therapies? You have valrubicin. Um, the, there, were, there was a phase two study and a phase three study. Um, they both looked at uh, patients who have failed prior BCG therapy. These are again, heavily pretreated patients. They have received six weekly installations of valrubicin, 800 milligrams and 75 milliliters of saline. The complete response rate were initially around 30%, but at six months, it was around 21%. Um, at, at about a year, it was around 10%. And if you follow these patients out uh, to the end, it was around 8%. Uh, more than half of the patients um, were, more than half of the patients ended up undergoing a cystectomy, most of who were non-responders. 4% uh, of patients ended up dying of bladder cancer. So what are some of the other existing therapies? You've got gemcitabine. Uh, this is a, an Italian study that looked at um, gemcitabine versus BCG for patients who failed prior course of BCG. Um, the way it was given is they were given twice weekly installations of gemcitabine, which is a little unusual. We don't usually give it that often. Um, and it's given for six weeks, followed by three weekly installations at three, six, and 12 months. It was compared against uh, six weekly courses of BCG, followed by three weekly installations at three, six, and 12 months. And what you'll see is that the median recurrence-free survival is uh, 13 months for those who got gemcitabine and seven months for those who got uh, BCG. If you follow these patients out to two years, you'll notice that 19% um, that, that of patients are disease-free at uh, two years with gemcitabine versus 3% with BCG. Uh, they also compared um, gemcitabine to mitomycin. Uh, this is a different study in 2010 published in JCO. Uh, here what they did was they gave patients who failed a prior course of BCG um, uh, or epirubicin, and they're randomized to either uh, gemcitabine or mitomycin. Of note, none of the patients here had carcinoma in situ. Again, this, these are only patients with papillary disease. Uh, what you'll see is that gemcitabine outperformed mitomycin C. Um, the median recurrence-free survival was never reached for the mitomycin C and it was 15 months, uh, sorry, never reached for gemcitabine and was 15 months for mitomycin C. If you look at patients with high-grade disease, again, gemcitabine outperformed mitomycin C, 22 to 33 months. So gemcitabine definitely has a role in this disease state. Uh, Isla Skinner also published a paper about eight years ago. It was a SWOG study, 47 patients who failed two prior courses of BCG. They either had CIS, T1, high-grade TA, or low-grade TA with more than two lesions. They were treated with gemcitabine 
uh, two grams and 100 milliliters of saline weekly for six weeks, followed by 12 monthly treatments. If you see, if you um, follow these patients, you'll see that at three months, their complete response rate was 45%, and at, at a year is around 28%. So 62% of the initial responders, 62% of the initial 45% remained disease-free at a year later. Now, Jim McKiernan also spearheaded the effort of utilizing docetaxel. Uh, this is a phase one study of 18 patients who are truly BCG refractory. They got six weekly installations of docetaxel. Um, there was no maintenance regimen initially in the phase one study. And what he found was that the initial complete response rate was 56%. Uh, there were 11% of partial responders, which we don't really look at that anymore. Um, and about a third of the patients had no response. Um, four out of those six patients underwent a cystectomy had non-invasive disease. So the six patients who had a cystectomy, two of them, two of them had muscle invasive disease and the other four did not. He then followed these patients and included more, uh, more patients and actually added uh, maintenance therapy. And what he found was that the complete response rate was maintained at 59% and followed these patients out. So at one year, the complete response rate was still maintained at 40%. And even at three years, it was 25%. Um, as far as recurrence-free survival, he found um, a trend towards improvement, towards recurrence-free survival in those who got maintenance versus induction. There was no difference as far as longer-term survival or progression-free survival or overall survival between maintenance and induction. So that kind of led the, um, the effort towards looking at sequential intravesical therapy. One of some of the earlier studies that have been published was by Ben Breyer um, in Badri when, uh, up in San Francisco. So, you know, UCSF definitely had a big role in, in playing in, in the initial sequential therapies. And Ben actually looked at the first 10 patients uh, that were BCG refractory or BCG intolerant. And what they did was they gave gemcitabine and mitomycin C. So they gave a gram of gemcitabine followed by 40 milligrams of mitomycin, uh, six weekly installations followed by monthly, 12 monthly installations. What he found was that six out of the 10 patients were disease-free um, at 14 months. Now, uh, right after this time, a couple things came to light. One was that there was a massive mitomycin shortage um, so there was very little mitomycin floating around um, around this time. And so uh, they had to look for alternatives. And the best alternative at the time was gemcitabine for a couple reasons. Uh, gemcitabine was readily available. It was generic and it's significantly cheaper. So mitomycin is probably around $1,000 per vial. Uh, gemcitabine, you're looking at less than $40. Um, so people actually started looking at this. And so this was again spearheaded by Mike O'Donnell. And everybody was doing it independently. And so Mike O'Donnell, uh, anytime a patient uh, had BCG unresponsive disease, everybody would email Mike O'Donnell and he'd give them this regimen. And it wasn't, the data was never published and everybody just, you know, looked at their own cohort, but no one published it. And it was at the PCAN meeting a couple years ago when uh, Mike O'Donnell just asked all the investigators to, that attended to, please um, submit their own data and their outcomes and see what, the, what, what it looks like. And people started doing it. And what you noticed was that the data was quite good. So um, they looked at um, uh, 276 patients who were BCG unresponsive. Um, 71, 71 of them had CIS, 34 were papillary only. And what you'll see is that the they don't have a complete response rate. They don't talk about it in the study. But if you actually look at the one-year data, 
the carcinoma in situ patients at one year, 60% of those patients were still disease free. Uh, if they're CIS, if they're papillary disease, one year is 62%. If you follow these patients out to two years, the recurrence-free survival at two years is 43% for CIS and 51% for, for papillary tumors. So this has really been a game changer with how we treat patients with BCG unresponsive disease. Now, that was, that was the mainstay until uh, pembrolizumab came into the foray after it got FDA approval three months ago. And the data, um, the, the drug was FDA approved based on the Keynote 057 study. Uh, they had two cohorts in the study, uh, 130 patients with carcinoma in situ, plus or minus papillary disease, and then they had a different cohort of, of 130 uh, patients with papillary disease without CIS. Patients were given pembrolizumab every three weeks until they either had disease progression um, or uh, recurrence or until completion of the study, which was at 24 months. And what you'll first start seeing is that, you know, 102 patients kind of uh, met uh, uh, the criteria for cohort A. They were treated. What you'll see is that only 23% of patients, uh, only 23 patients, basically 23% of patients are still ongoing. So that means the remaining 77, 78% had to discontinue. And they discontinued not because they were unable to tolerate disease. The vast majority of patients discontinued because they either had persistent disease or recurrent disease. 65% of the discontinuation was due to disease recurrences or persistence. Only about eight or 9% of patients stopped secondary to adverse effects. And so what did the data look like? Uh, at three months, the um, CR rate was 40%. And um, the real plus from this study was that not a single patient progressed to muscle invasive disease. So, I mean, while we say that, you know, 60% of the patients failed the study, um, I, I think the, the, the positive spin towards this is that not a single patient progressed to muscle invasive or metastatic cancer. If you follow these patients out to a year, you'll see that 53% of the initial 40% were still disease free at a year. So in essence, you're looking at about a 20% disease-free rate at a year. So let's go over some of the clinical trials. Um, first it's the, is the atstiladrin. Uh, this is a recombinant adenovirus that actually harbors interferon alpha. And this has been spearheaded by Steve Borgen and Colin Dinney. Uh, there was an initial phase two study that was, that was uh, presented uh, a year ago and uh, the most recent data was presented uh, a few months ago at GUASCO in San Francisco. Um, they had 198 patients, 157 were enrolled, 107 patients had carcinoma in situ, 50 patients had papillary tumors. Um, the efficacy population was 151 patients. And what you'll see is that, um, uh, that uh, 53% of the patients with carcinoma in situ were complete responders at three months. If you follow these patients out to six months, nine months, and 12 months, you'll see that the recurrence-free survival for patients with CIS, BCG unresponsive disease is 24%. For papillary disease, it's much better because oftentimes that's a surgical disease and the initial resection may have been of, of use. Um, 73% of patients were initially complete responders, but by a year um, you lost some, but still maintained 44% of patients as, um, 
as complete responders. Um, now, what about the patients who were um, who actually had a complete response? You'll see that 60% of the papillary patients uh, maintained their complete responses a year later, and 45% of patients um, uh, maintained their complete responsiveness at a year later. What's different between this and the and the keynote study is that the keynote study uh, looked at a year since the initial response. Um, here, what they did was they actually looked at um, at, at a year since the um, the initiation of the study. So in essence, you're kind of comparing nine months of atstiladrin to 12 months of, of Pembro. So it, the numbers vary a little bit, but I would say that they're equivalent. The benefit of, of the atstiladrin study is that the toxicity rates are significantly lower. Uh, there's no systemic therapy whatsoever. These patients come in and they get an intravesical therapy every three months for four treatments. It's quite benign and um, you don't have to worry about all the systemic toxicities associated with immune-related adverse effects from pembrolizumab. The downside of it was that you did have about 5% of patients with uh, CIS and about 6% of patients with papillary disease that progressed to muscle invasive disease. And so that is the downside. And it's, it's not that the drug doesn't work, it's just that oftentimes these patients harbor occult disease that's, that's a little more invasive and we tend to miss it because you don't see, you don't necessarily see what's underneath the mucosa, number one. But number two, oftentimes, if, if you know, for those of you that treat patients with, you know, this disease, the whole bladder is just abnormal. Everything's red and you can't tell head from tails. You don't know whether something's abnormal or, or normal. And you can't be, keep taking patients to the operating room and re-resecting them all the time because they're, they have terrible lower urine tract symptoms. So it, it's understandable that these patients actually may harbor some disease that often goes missed. But the benefit of, of the Pembro study, the keynote study, is that you didn't have any patients that, that went on to um, metastatic disease. Now, this is a study that I'm spearheading. Um, uh, 803 is an IL-15 super agonist. Uh, there have been a number of studies that have shown that IL-15 uh, tends to augment the natural killer response. And <clears throat> Uh, we uh, uh, sought out to uh, do a, a phase two or phase three registra registrational study, and we had 80 patients in cohort A. These are CIS, um, BCG-unresponsive disease, and then cohort B. These are papillary tumors without CIS that are BCG-unresponsive. What's a little bit different with our study versus the others is that oftentimes you really can't tell whether a patient is going to be a responder at the initial three months. And so what we did was we allowed patients who had high-grade TA or CIS at three months to receive an additional six installations of ALT803 plus BCG. If the patients had uh, high-grade T1 or if they had um, uh, or new CIS, then they were off the study. Um, uh, if they had low-grade TA or if they had no evidence of any residual disease, then they were maintained on it. And these patients would get uh, three installations, just like a maintenance study for up to 18 months. Uh, the study turned out to be, uh, the data seems to be quite significant. Um, our complete response rate at any time is 72%. Now the truth is, is that at three months, the complete response rate is about 55%. 
we rechallenged those who were just uh, high-grade TAs or CIS, and we found that half of those that initially didn't respond responded by six months. Um, and if you follow these patients out to six months, uh, then the complete response rate is maintained at 56%. Now, this is a comparison of the 803 study compared to some of the other studies out that I've talked about. So if you look at the Val Rubison study of the phase two study, and then the phase three study that allowed for uh, approval, uh, pembrolizumab, vicinium, which was, um, I didn't really talk about it because it, it did a, it's probably not gonna get FDA approved because it didn't meet many of the milestones. Um, if you look at uh, uh, CR at any time, the N803 definitely outperformed everybody. Um, if you follow these patients out to six months, again, N803 tended to do the pest, and at 12 months, um, it's about 25%. Now, that 25% is about what uh, pembrolizumab is and what about uh, etstiladren is. And so um, I, I, think, I think in the long run, um, while we have really... A, a really good complete response rate initially at three months and six months. Again, we're dealing with a cohort of patients that is bound to recur. And sometimes these patients, you know, undoubtedly recur at a year later. And, and again, our 25% is similar to the pembrolizumab data in that these 25% were 25% after the six month evaluation. So initially this is 18 months um, after uh, starting therapy. So um, we may not be comparing apples to apples, but you know, it, it, the data is good, but you know, just caution. Um, we looked at the papillary tumors and found again, the complete responses were quite high, 78% um, at any time. Um, and at six months was still 78%. We still haven't reached a median recurrence-free survival to date. Now, what are some of the other clinical trials? This is a really promising study by Jim McKiernan, uh, where he gives patients cabazitaxel, gemcitabine, and cisplatin. You can't do it all in the same day. It's a little too toxic. So he brings patients in um, twice a week. And this has been really led by uh, DeCastro. And um, this is a paper that was published uh, uh, last month in the Journal of Urology. They looked at 18 patients with a medium follow-up of 28 months. Now, these are really heavily pretreated patients. So the mean number of intra prior intravesical courses was 3.7. 50% uh, of patients received intravesical therapy after failing BCG. And then 40% of patients were, uh, who were BCG unresponsive were actually enrolled in a phase one clinical trial so again, heavily pretreated, 33% of patients were T1 and 72% of patients were CIS. Um, the data is very promising. The complete response rate initially is 89%. If you look at one year recurrence-free survival, it's 83% and two years is 64%. If you look at all comers and compare them to those who received the maximum dose of CGCs, cisplatin, cabazitaxel, and gemcitabine, the all comers obviously didn't do quite as well as those that received all, all treatment courses in part due to toxicity, but still tells you that there's a dose effect. Uh, the, more, the more they got, the better they did. Um, in that 18 patients, uh, you'll see that five out of the 18 underwent a radical cystectomy here displayed by the scissors. Um, and then six out of the 18 um, uh, uh, ended up having recurrences. Now, I want to talk a little bit about cystectomy. And I know we talk about CIS and no, you know, people oftentimes say, you know, no one dies of CIS, but 
there's is a paper published 10 years ago. This is a multi-institutional study of patients with 243 patients who underwent a cystectomy. 16% of patients at cystectomy were either uh, TA or T0, but 36% of patients were actually muscle invasive and 6% of patients were node positive. Patients with CIS, again, I can't under, uh, I, I, can't, I, I can't overstate the, the implications of having BCG unresponsive disease with CIS and assuming that there's nothing underneath it. Um, if you look at the Harry Herr series, the memorial series, is that patients who ended up getting an early radical cystectomy, they did significantly better than those who got a delayed radical cystectomy. And those who, who had superficial disease at radical cystectomy did significantly better than those who had invasive disease at radical cystectomy. And that, and, and that leads us to the conclusion. When I talk about BCG and responsive disease, I really talk about the past, the present, and the future. And, and if you look at what, what was available in the past, it was valrubicin, it was gemcitabine, or docetaxel, and BCG, and interferon alpha. What we have available to us now is gemcitabine and docetaxel, sequential intravesical therapy. We have pembrolizumab. And um, next month, the FDA is going to review at Stiladrin. Um, and N803 hopefully will submit our data to the FDA in the next year. And obviously, the uh, triple chemotherapy uh, scheduled by Jim McKiernan of cabazitaxel, gemcitabine, and cisplatin. I think that's, that's going to be a game changer in the future. And with that, I'll take some questions. So thus far, we only have a one question, um, which was asking about the differences between treatments. Now, considering all the data that's been presented, uh, the question is, why isn't gemcitabine first-line therapy for high-grade non-muscle invasive disease? Why give BCG at all? Um, because we think that BCG with maintenance, um, again, like I showed in the initial study, that BCG with maintenance outperforms chemotherapy. Um, and we think that especially for patients um, who, uh, who are looking to have a more durable response, the BCG offers that. I mean, chemotherapy only works when chemotherapy is in the bladder. Um, once you stop the intravesical chemotherapy, um, there, there's no lasting effect. There's no durability. Um, that said, um, I still treat patients with high-grade TA with intravesical gemcitabine. I give them an induction course followed by 10 or 12 monthly installations of, of gemcitabine. We have uh, one other, a uh, few more questions trickling in. Uh, one asks, uh, I thought some earlier studies with intravesical cisplatin had high rates of anaphylaxis. What has changed? I think, I think our understanding of, of being able to postpone um, you know, these intravesical therapies to a later time to allow the bladder to heal. I think we're a little more cognizant as far as getting urine analyses uh, prior to intravesical therapies, not giving it when they have gross hematuria or urinary tract infections. And so I think, I, I, I think, I think nowadays, you know, we're able to give these intravesical therapies and maintain uh, a relatively good quality of life. But again, you know, if you look at, um, if you look at Jim McKiernan's study, you know, you, you see that the all comers don't do quite as well as those that got, um, that they got the maximum dose. And that's, and, and, and that's in part due to the fact that a fair amount, you know, had difficulty tolerating the maximum dose. 
Okay, and there are two questions that are somewhat similar. Um, how has BCG shortage affected your practice? And then another question that's similar, given current BCG dosing, uh, are you using full dose at induction and maintenance or decreased dose? I'll just remind everyone who's posting questions to the chat to put them in Q&A. So that's a really good question. Uh, fortunate for me, um, I have the, and fortunate, fortunately for, for, for the patients who are getting their care at UCLA and a few other sites, um, Immunity Bio, the company that um, is performing the BCG unresponsive study, the 803, the ALT-803 or the N803, they also have a BCG naive study. So these are patients who are BCG naive. And what they do is they supply us with a full dose of BCG. So we don't actually have to go and get it. They supply us with the BCG and these patients get a randomized either BCG alone or BCG plus 803. And these are for patients who have carcinoma in situ. These are BCG naive CIS patients. And so we don't really have an issue in, you know, with BCG naive patients because we have access to that clinical trial. Now, if a patient has um, a high grade T1 and doesn't have CIS, then they don't qualify for that study. And in those patients, I would, we try to give a full dose for induction and then uh, we cut the dose uh, for maintenance. But lately, we've had such shortage issues that we've actually had we've had no choice but to uh, do a third dose um, for all patients for induction and maintenance. And then, was there a second question associated with that? I think you got both of those with response to uh, full dose or decreased dose. Um, yeah. there and, and I don't know what the efficacy is going to be like uh, with, with, with uh, a third dose. I mean, you know, there was an EORTC study that was published, <clears throat> God, about maybe eight years ago, um, that found that um, for those with high-risk disease, uh, third dose or one year of treatment was inferior to full dose in three years, whereas those with intermediate-risk disease, um, uh, a third dose or one-year treatment was sufficient and just as good as, as, as longer therapies. That said, there wasn't a huge difference in progression rates between a third dose and a full dose. How does, a, another question is, how does periop installation of intravesical gemcitabine uh, for intermediate risk, a non-muscle invasive disease, affect failure outcomes? Well, so Ed Messing published the data uh, last year demonstrating that gemcitabine uh, performed quite well compared to, um, to uh, uh, placebo. And, uh, you know, that was not surprising. We knew that gemcitabine does a little better than mitomycin and it's less toxic. And so we know that it reduces the chances of recurrences significantly. I think, I think the hazard ratio on that study was about 0.4. So there was a 60% level of risk reduction for patients who got gemcitabine versus placebo. There's a question regarding hyperthermia with intravesical chemo, uh, the HIVEC mitomycin C, uh, in non-muscle invasive disease versus BCG unresponsive non-muscle invasive. Yeah, those are all studies that were in Europe. We don't have access to those. Uh, the data look promising. It's just, I haven't seen those studies really take off. I mean, it's not as though those studies have really changed uh, practice in Europe. Um, and that leads me to believe that there's probably a component of 
of selection bias into those studies um, and potentially like uh, having a really good surgeon. I mean, we tend to underestimate the role of the surgeon. We sit here and, and attribute, you know, credit to some of these drugs. And we sometimes underestimate the role of the surgeon in really rendering someone complete response. Um, I mean, I, 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 you know, we had the BCG naive study um, in which we uh, enrolled patients who were BCG naive, uh, either to BCG plus 803 or BCG alone. And I enrolled something on the order of 30 patients in the study. And, you know, I think it was like 200 plus patients. And the, the disease-free rate at a year and a half was 90, 95% in both arms. So I, I, I think there's a role in, you know, how we manage disease now than before. I mean, I think we, we, we tend to be better surgeons because our cameras are much better. The Olympus cameras have beautiful visualization. You've got stores and their blue light uh, equipment. Um, we do restaging re to URBTs. All those things have played a significant role. And I think they play a role in, in durable responses irrespective of what study we enroll them in. That actually is a good segue into a uh, similar question. Um, have you noticed changes in practice pattern in surveying these patients now that we're using augmented cysto, either blue light, uh, NBI, um, with every surveillance cysto, are you using it only with CIS? No, I'm, you know, we have at UCLA, we have um, uh, our flexible scopes are um, with narrowband imaging. So they're the Olympus set. And then in the operating room, we have, you know, um, the, either the stores equipment or the Olympus equipment. And I'll tell you, the flexible equipment in the, in the clinic is far superior to um, the equipment in the operating room. The image quality of MBI is just phenomenal. Um, I'm able to visualize every little detail of the bladder and able to see these small tumors that you couldn't see with, with a rigid scope. I, I think not because the rigid scope is worse than, than, than a flexible scope. I just think the, the camera quality, the high def quality has really played a role in, in, in identifying these tumors, irrespective of narrowband and blue light. Now, I'm a, I, like, I like narrowband in the clinic because you don't have to give any drugs and you can immediately turn on the narrowband filter with the press of a button. I think what it does for me is that it helps me identify, it creates contrast between the tumor and, and the bladder base. And so you can actually see the vascularity a little better and you see just disorganized blood vessels forming. And those oftentimes tend to be associated with CIS or, or TA, high grade TA tumors. Uh, the blue light, you know, I, I think is a game changer as well. It really seems to help in the operating room, oftentimes you have a hard time seeing these uh, tumors because again, I don't think the rigid equipment in the operating room is quite as good as in the clinic and it tends to help. There's one question about what is a recommendation for patients who are intolerant of non-BCG intravesical treatments? Would you change to another agent immediately? Yeah, so if patients are unable to tolerate BCG, I then switch them over to, uh, so if they're naive, I switch them over to gemcitabine. And the dosage of gemcitabine is two grams um, of gemcitabine, and I give them once a week dose for six weeks, followed by 10 weekly installations. Now, if they're BCG unresponsive, and um, they, they, they have terrible side effects from BCG plus X, then I switch them to gemcitabine and docetaxel. Alternatively, you can always put them on pembrolizumab or it's Stilidrin. 
The pembrolizumab is systemic, uh, is a systemic checkpoint inhibitor, it's an anti-PD-1, and it's stiladrine is a uh, recombinant adenovirus that's non-replicating that you instill every three months into the bladder. Are there recent advances in molecular markers to predict BCG response? Uh, yeah, uh, nothing that is ready for prime time. Uh, there's definitely some work that's looked at whether FGFR3 positivity, um, uh, there was a recent paper that was published that looked at this and found that it's not so clear cut. But yeah, people are looking at various molecular uh, uh, biomarkers as far as prediction of response to BCG. We actually had a, um, a BCG um, naive study in which we, uh, this was a study that we had a while back. It was a vaccine that was supposed to be targeted for, um, for bladder cancer. It was supposed to come from the University of Michigan bladder cancer cell line. Um, unfortunately, um, the company got the wrong batch and ended up being a prostate cancer cell line. And so they developed like a vaccine for prostate cancer, but no one knew about it. And so they, they enrolled patients for BCG naive, it was a BCG naive study and patients got low dose, medium or high dose of vaccine, plus everyone got BCG. The good thing is that we collected urinary biomarkers on all these patients, 75 patients, and we, we got it uh, before and during treatments. And we looked at about 112 bio, urinary biomarkers, really couldn't find anything. By far the biggest predictor of someone responding to BCG is really counterintuitive. Um, it's smokers. Smokers had a significantly improved response to BCG therapy than non-smokers. But amongst all the other biomarkers, urinary biomarkers really couldn't find anything. And as far as genomics, um, that's still early, but maybe there's a role for FGFR3 as far as being a predictor of, of response or not. This is a combination of a few different questions. What strain of BCG are you currently using in the current BCG shortage? And then also management strategies in areas that are unable to get BCG currently. Um, so we have TICE and it's 50 milligrams. And so we've been cutting it into thirds. Um, so it's 16.67. And again, for patients who, um, who may not have access to BCG, if they're located next to a medical center that has uh, significant uh, quantities of BCG, I would say refer those patients to that uh, facility. If not, uh, chemotherapy. Now, the problem with chemotherapy is that you have to have a pharmacy kind of adjoining your clinic where you can instill this. And so, um, uh, you know, if, if, if you don't, then um, I, I, I don't know what to tell you other than maybe referring these patients to someone who does. Um, but it, it really, there are gemcitabine, and again, I've had good, good results with gemcitabine in BCG-naive patients. BCG unresponsive, it's BCG plus, it's gemcitabine plus docetaxel. A few people are asking, is there still a role for mitomycin C? And does MVAC have a role in this? Uh, um, uh, I, don't, I don't really use mitomycin C. Um, I think that uh, it, it tends to have pretty significant effects on the bladder. You, I've had to take out a couple bladders because of mitomycin toxicity. You get this contractile, you know, walnut-sized bladder. Um, 
And so between that and the fact that it's much more expensive and the fact that gemcitabine, I think, is probably better than mitomycin, I don't really use mitomycin C that much. Um, the only role that I use with mitomycin C is uh, with a company that just got actually FDA approval. Uh, the company is Eurogen Pharma. They, many of you just probably may have gotten the AUA Today blast. Uh, a couple days ago, they got FDA approval for UGN 101, which is their gel combined with mitomycin C. And um, uh, that's been shown to be effective as a chemoablative agent for upper tract urethral carcinoma. The, the company is also looking at, um, at doing a, a bladder cancer study for patients with uh, intermediate risk bladder cancer where the tumor is left intact and you put the gel in combination with monomycin C. I think that's a little different because um, unlike giving 40 milligrams of monomycin C, you're getting, you know, you get 40 milligrams of monomycin C, you're getting a full dose and the whole bladder gets exposed to it. Whereas in, in patients in the UGN study, the Urgen study, um, the mitomycin C is mixed with the gel and it slowly eludes out of the gel. And therefore you get a durable, you know, a, a longer response uh, because the mitomycin C is slowly being released out of the gel and may have chemoablative effects without the toxicities. But again, you know, that's, you know, that's still experimental. Um, they recently released um, their, uh, their data, their phase 2B data, that showed that 65% of patients were complete responders of intermediate risk disease where you left the tumor intact. And 65% of patients, the tumors were completely gone when you look back in there uh, after six weeks. And most of those patients maintained, I think at a year later, 85% of patients were still disease-free. Uh, there are a few questions about technique uh, with our TURs. Now, uh, do you prefer monopolar, bipolar? Do you cauterize the base, blue light at first resection? And then specifically for high-risk disease, do you perform random biopsies? So um, I use bipolar exclusively. Um, and so uh, I, I end up resecting um, the tumor entirely. I, I, I do a pretty aggressive TUR. Um, and I know that uh, because, uh, <clears throat> you know, I was one of the early adopters of the gemcitabine study. And uh, not a gemcitabine study, but uh, I was one of the early adopters of intravesical gemcitabine after, um, <clears throat> after the JAMA paper was published. And out of my first 10 patients where I put intravesical gemcitabine, I had two patients develop complete alopecia. One was a woman going to her daughter's wedding and another was a 50-year-old man with a full head of hair. So uh, that led me to believe that yeah, maybe gemcitabine can cause alopecia, but probably more importantly, I probably did a really deep resection and I, I caused microperforations. And so I think, I think my TUR is a little more aggressive. With regards to blue light, um, yeah, I use blue light in patients who, um, who have continuous uh, you know, uh, abnormal cytologies in fish. And um, I, you know, the flexible scope in the office doesn't really show any identifiable lesion. I take the patients to the OR and turn on the blue light. Uh, for those patients, um, I try to find anything that looks remotely abnormal. And I do end up doing um, uh, selective washings from each kidney. And I also do a TUR of the prostate 
at around two, at around five and seven o'clock. Um, you'd be surprised at how many patients actually harbor tumor in the prostate and it goes completely missed. We completely miss it. Uh, there are a few questions about the timing of uh, post-TOR installation with either gemcitabine um, or other agents. Uh, which cases would you say that you use it versus not, outside of there being a frank perforation or concern for perforation of the bladder time of TOR? Um, so for patients who are intermediate risk, um, I would probably give them um, uh, gemcitabine in the operating room, and then I would give them uh, gemcitabine uh, you know, uh, as a maintenance regimen, induction and maintenance. Um, I tend to give it um, immediately afterwards. Um, I put a three-way Foley catheter. I instill the monomycin, uh, sorry, I instill the gemcitabine and I clamp the, um, the, that port. And then I have a pre-connected um, uh, saline bag to the uh, inflow port, but I, obviously I clamp it. And then about an hour and a half later, uh, I asked the nurse to um, open up the outflow and uh, saline wash the bladder. Um, that's basically how I do it. Uh, and there were a few questions um, re, uh, reporting what is posted the AUA website, uh, which states that if BCG is not available, preferred alternative is mitomycin induction and monthly maintenance. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the question is, do you feel like this should be updated uh, with gemcitabine or another agent? I do. I do. I, th- I think gemcitabine uh, definitely has replaced mitomycin for two reasons. It's less expensive, and I think there's less adverse effects in the bladder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and I think, um, I think the AUA is probably going to adopt sequential intravesical therapy for the BCG unresponsive patients. And uh, as a follow-up, would you recommend uh, dose gem? for maintenance for all BCG unresponsive patients? Yeah, so the way that works is um, the dose, gem dosi study, the sequential intravesical, is they get uh, one gram of gemcitabine in 50 milliliters of water, and then they get 37.5 milligrams of docetaxel in 50 milliliters of saline. They get it for, an, you, you, you put the gemcitabine in for an hour, and then an hour and a half, you drain it, and then you put the docetaxel in for an hour, hour and a half, and then you send the patients home. Um, they get it once a week for six weeks, followed by once a month for two years. So um, it, it is a two-year maintenance schedule. Now, this is more related to a uh, cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, comparing costs between those who are getting more intravesical or systemic treatment compared to those going straight to radical cystectomy. I think this is including not just the index hospital session, but subsequent costs afterward. Yeah, that's a great research question. Um, <clears throat> you know, um, Hollenbeck uh, from the University of Michigan did look at some of this and found that, um, that, found that, that intravesical therapies are quite costly. Um, and ultimately, a significant number of patients will end up going on to radical cystectomy. Now, that was in an era before some of these newer agents. Um, that was in an era when we were giving BCG and interferon, and interferon was very, very expensive. Um, and so uh, I, I could see why patients may, some, 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 some may argue, at least from a third, you know, from, from a societal perspective, that maybe doing an upfront cystectomy would be more cost-effective. 
But the truth is, is the radical cystectomy is very expensive. The inpatient hospital stay is quite expensive. And um, it is, uh, it, you know, it's, it's associated with quality of life differences for these patients. You know, they may have to wear an illegal, you know, a urine bag, or they end up having to be incontinent at night and have to wear condom catheters. I mean, there, there's some quality of life implications there. And so um, I don't usually attribute cost uh, because there's such a huge difference in quality of life that you can't really, we could talk about qualities and quality of life uh, factors, but it's, it's hard to compare a cystectomy to intravesical therapy and, and, and cost being the primary driver. But, but that's a great, great research question, probably warrants research. One of my fellows better work on it. I know there may be people looking at it. Uh... Uh, one question was, in BCG unresponsive patients, do you challenge any of those patients with the second induction BCG before moving on to alternative treatment? And I guess, which patients would you select for that option? So that, so that was the, so we designed the 803 study, the uh, IL-15 super agonist that way. So if patients had, you know, uh, CIS or T1, and then at, at, at three months, we saw that they still had a little bit of CIS or they had some TA. Then we rechallenged those patients with another six-week course of BCG and 803. Um, those are the ones I would rechallenge. Um, if they have high-grade T1, that bladder is screaming at you, telling you that it needs to come out. Um, and if they develop new CIS, then, then those patients are probably not responding. Uh, I think after this question, we may have time for maybe one more since we're coming close, or actually this may be the last. Um, is there a decrease in rates of cystectomy with these new medications? Do you anticipate this? Uh, the reasoning for that was it looks like the complete response rate is similar or the same across many of these agents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, probably the most promising is, are, are, are the intravesical chemos, um, where you're able to maintain 40 to, you know, you know, uh, the triple chemotherapy regimen, you know, is, is looking at 80%, you know, six, 40 to 70 to 80% responses at a year to two years. And so I, I think there would be a significant reduction in cystectomy rates in those patients. In those that are getting the Itstilidrin, uh, those that are getting the Pembrolizumab, I think a significant number of those patients go on to radical cystectomy. Um, and, and so then not to say that they're not good, it's just you know, um, it's just, we think that the immune system could only, you know, be stretched so far. And, and without a cytotoxic agent, it's unlikely to have a, a durable response. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, we're close to the end of our time. I just want to remind all the participants uh, that any questions that were not addressed will be posted on the website. Um, so go ahead and keep uh, popping in those Q&As uh, if there are any more. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.